Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton and I'm your host. This is part number two of three episodes discussing the Sante Raid with Colonel John Gargas, United States Air Force, retired. If you haven't listened to part number one with Colonel Gargas yet, go back and listen to that episode first to make sure you get the full story. In 1970, then Major Gargas was a key mission planner for the Sante Raid. Because of his expertise in navigation over Vietnam, he also served as the lead navigator on that mission, helping to guide all the raiders behind enemy lines, undetected, arriving at the Sante prison compound at 0218 on the morning of November 21st, 1970. In this episode, we discuss more details of the secret training in Florida, the special equipment they acquired to use during the mission, and I'll also ask Colonel Gargas about how and when Commander-in-Chief Pacific Command Admiral John S. McCain Jr. was notified about the secret rescue mission being planned for the POWs. He, of course, had operational responsibility for the Vietnam Theater of Operations and was also the father of then-POW, Lieutenant Commander John Sidney McCain III. So let's get right to this. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. What I'd like to do is just pick up uh, where we left off last time. The last conversation we had, we were talking about Barbara, the the mock-up of the Sante prison that was put together. And um, we talked about the questions of could the uh, Russian spy satellites spot that. And you guys did a lot of testing and figured out uh, they could not spot that. Uh, and you ended up being able to leave it up and y- you didn't have to take it down uh, during daylight hours. So I know the ground elements uh, of the Sante Raiders, they were very busy during this time practicing and rehearsing uh, their element of the raid. But I know you and uh, the pilots were very busy uh, doing other planning uh, and practicing uh, some other very special flying formations. And what I'd like to do is start off today talking about what were those special flying formations that you all were practicing with the C-130s and okay. and the helicopters together? And, and why were those formations so important to the success of your mission? Yes. Well, the it was very important for the success of the mission to arrive at the prison at the same time for the helicopters, for Jolly Green Giant helicopters, and for A1Es. To do so, uh, they needed an escort from combat talents because we had the navigational equipment that uh, would assure us that uh, we will get there on the first pass and uh, 
uh, that we will bring the hel- the helicopters and A1Es with us. Now, the problem then is uh, you have to fly formation, so you have dissimilar aircraft. Now, the initial concept for the operation was that uh, the helicopter that would land inside of the prison compound would be an Army UH-1H helicopter called, called Huey. Uh, so uh, we were excited over that. Hey, this is going to be great because here we're going to have a formation uh, with one of the uh, Army helicopters uh, among the Air Force uh, aircraft. Uh, that that seemed so exciting to us. Plus, it was a joint operation. So, uh, well, that was great. Now, the problem was... Uh, that uh, Huey helicopter is a very slow uh, aircraft. Uh, we studied the temperatures and uh, altitudes and so on that we would experience over Southeast Asia. And uh, using those per- parameters, uh, we determined that the fully loaded uh, Huey could fly at maximum 85 to 87 knots. Well, <laughs> uh, C-130s cannot fly that slow. Uh, uh, we would have to fly in a landing configuration. So the slowest speed that the C-130 uh, was flying at uh, on the first day that we were there uh, was uh, 102 to, 102, uh, to 103 knots. That was with 70% flaps and uh, uh, seven uh, degree nose high attitude. So it was landing landing speed. Now, uh, the only way that we uh, wanted, we knew about drafting. We knew that uh, uh, helicopters, uh, uh, Jolly Green Giants were drafting off C-130. So we needed to find out uh, whether Huey can draft off of a C-130. So we made several tries during the day, uh, uh, and finally we figured out that if we flew right under a Huey that was uh, doing its max speed, and uh, uh, just after the, uh, above the uh, uh First engine, number one engine, and uh, behind the wing, uh, in that position, uh, uh, we would hitch to Huey, and uh, Huey would could pick up as much as twenty knots of airspeed. Wow! So that's a lot. Uh, that uh, that solved that problem. I said, okay, we will be able to do that. So we settled on the operational. Uh, indicated airspeed of uh, 105 knots uh, for uh, for the combat talents. Now, the trick to that uh, we used uh, you you had to trim uh, each engine. Well, uh, on the left hand side, it was key. Uh, you uh, trim the power uh, to the optimum flying conditions, uh, not for the C-130, uh, but for the Huey. That would be in trail. Got now, so uh, a- after uh, uh, the uh, 
crew from Germany joined us. They came in about two weeks later. Uh, when they joined us, by that time, uh, we already knew uh, what the speeds would be. And then we had two C-130s that were were flying because one uh, came from uh, uh, Lockheed Air Service where it was being serviced. And, of course, we flew in with one to Eglin. So we found out that uh, one of the aircraft was better, uh, was performing better in this configuration than another. So immediately we said, okay, uh, this aircraft is going to be uh, the escort for helicopters. This one will be there. Okay. So uh, we went into nighttime operation, and uh, we that was uh, uh, difficult uh, for the Huey pilots, but they overcame it. What they had to do in their position about the left wing, uh, they would take the grease pencils and uh, they would uh, paint a square in the left window, uh, the square where the uh, wingtip, top wingtip light of the uh, left wing would be. So they would have to maintain that in the, in that square. And the other square was uh, in a window, upper right-hand window, and another square was painted over there by the pilot. And uh, he would keep uh, pilots, hel- uh, the, our combat talent pilots, left shoulder in, uh, in, inside that square. So that, it, it was that fixed. It, it, was, it was that critical. Now, there was pilot. Co-pilot in the helicopter, he had his square <laughs> because he was, his angle was different. So he also had his hairs. And they would uh, fly for 10 minutes at a time, 10 or 15, they would alternate because they would, uh, it was all hand flown, no, uh, no autopilot yeah. whatsoever. But it was tedious uh, for doing that for three hours and 15 minutes. Oh, well, yeah. anyway. Uh, well, the well, how many, problem, let me ask you one more question about that. So how many helicopters would draft on one C-130? Okay. Uh, well, just one. Uh, the others, at that speed, uh, other helicopters did not have to draft uh, because uh, uh, Jolly Green Giants, H-H-3, could fly 115-plus uh, uh, miles by okay. itself. The uh, H-H-53, Super Jolly Green Giants, 150 knots. So uh, that was no problem. Uh, it, they would just, and they could fly at that slow speed too, and they would just st- stack up. So we have uh, six helicopters, three on uh, left wing, above uh, left wing, and uh, three about the right wing. And uh, uh, they would uh, also focus on, uh, on the uh, lights, and uh, they would be stacked up. Each uh, helicopter would be uh, higher than the uh, previous ones. And, of course, they practiced uh, different separations, uh, what they felt was safe, and I've, I don't not have the uh, figures for the uh, feet. Well, the other problem we had with Huey uh, was the uh, fuel uh, consumption. Uh, we uh, 
couldn't get enough fuel for uh, uh, three hours and 15 minutes or three hours and 20 minutes uh, that it would, it would take you because who is not refuelable. So we had to add uh, bladders, uh, uh, bladder tanks, and uh, those were mounted uh, under, uh, by the skids uh, under the aircraft. Uh, that kind of affected the uh, flight characteristics of, of Huey, but we could still do it at 105 knots. So uh, that was it. Okay. Then once we uh, started, we went on our first nighttime operation. Uh, when we flew the whole route uh, uh, with uh, 11 troops inside of the Huey. Now, can you imagine uh, 11 combat-laden soldiers I- inside of Huey? I mean, it was a circus act. I mean, they, they were uh, squeezed in. Now, during training, uh, for safety reasons, we didn't fly uh, with 11 people uh, all the way around. We had two Hueys. In training, what we did, uh, we had one Huey uh, that was uh, w- loaded with lead weights to simulate the, with the exact weight that uh, uh, 11 people, uh, 11 combat soldiers would have. So uh, we would fly the whole route uh, drafting uh, with that uh, uh, Huey. See, we didn't want to lose 11 people in training. No. Yeah, I understand. But that brings up another point that you, in your training, um, I got this out of your book. I was reading your book. So since all these tactics were so new and they had never been attempted before, you guys uh, did a lot of training for this. And you actually did over a thousand hours Yes, about incident thousand free. six, thousand six or thousand seven, and uh, we were very cautious. Uh, we were safety conscious because we knew hey, this thing has to work. Uh, can you imagine if we had an accident? Uh, that would have canceled the mission right there in training. So right. wow, and we were motivated. Yeah. So that was one of the primary reason why uh, we flew with lead weights. Now. At the initial point, which was 11 miles away uh, from Barbara, from the uh, compound simulated uh, Barbara, uh, that was 11 points, 11 miles. Uh, What we would do, we'd fly the route, and at at the IP, uh, the other Huey with 11 people would join us. So these individuals were in the aircraft maybe for five minutes before join up and they flew those 11 miles uh to uh uh, barbara where barbara uh, where helicopter landed practically on a dime uh they would come out and uh uh, we were shooting for uh 17 to 18 minutes uh on the ground before they could eliminate all of the enemy that that was our estimate okay so Oh, that was good. It, it worked in training at night. But here, when we flew whole route and, uh, uh, with the troops and they landed in the compound, uh, they, they couldn't move. Yeah. It took them more, almost 40, 40 seconds before uh, 
they could clear the area because they were cramped up and so on. So we said, okay, uh, Bull Simons made an immediate decision. This is not going to work. Uh, we have to get another helicopter. Uh, so, all right, uh, we were disappointed, uh, but uh, we had us. Uh, the next size helicopter was HH3. Uh, the problem we had then was, uh, was the courtyard big enough to accommodate it? Uh, well, our first answer was no. Uh, we, we can't really do it. It's too large. Uh, it was 15, 14 feet uh, difference uh, in the, in the uh, roller space. Uh, so our photo interpreter, interpreter uh, Jake, measured and remeasured the uh, uh, photos uh, that we had of, uh, of the prison and uh, estimated where the trunks of the trees are. And uh, we came out down with the conclusion that we would have two feet to spare <laughs> between the r- rotor blades and the trunks of the tree. Wow, talk about now, pinpoint accuracy, huh? Yes. Well, uh, the uh, uh, pilots of the H tree proved that they could do it. They could land on a dime. Well, but the training Barbara, uh, the trees were not trees. They were potted plants. <laughs> so, uh, gee, we knew, gosh, uh, uh, in the reality, we, 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 can, we committed ourselves to uh, H3 because we could even put more troops in, in the helicopter. Uh, Dick Meadows was hoping for 14. <laughs> well, there was no way 14 would fit in a Huey. So we started flying with uh, H3 and 14 uh, 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 soldiers, and we could fly a whole route, and they were fresh, and everything worked out. They, they could uh, uh, come out and do their job. Now, we knew one thing that in real life, once we, uh, th- that helicopter comes through the trees uh, in the prison, uh, it will be damaged. It, it will have to uh, cut the limbs of the tree and maybe flip over. Or, you know, here, pilot skill would come in there. Uh, because, let's face it, when once they did it, uh, you had... Well, three crew members and 14 people in a helicopter. And it was like being inside of the lawnmower when you're cutting the grass. Yeah. yeah. that That's what it ended up to be during their landing. Uh, tree limbs were being chopped. And, of course, uh, we have some photographs. I don't know if you have seen them. Uh, you saw the uh, trunks of the tree were about uh, uh, this big around, about eight. Yeah, Eight to nine, nine inches. And, and okay. I actually want to ask you about that later when we get to okay. talking about the actual raid. Uh, I'm very interested in actually how that uh, element of the raid worked uh, during okay. that landing in, in such a tight spot. But what I what I think it's uh, really important to do now is um, t- we've talked about combat talent a lot and 
I'd really appreciate it if you could tell everybody a little bit about um, what was special about these combat Talon C-130s because without the capabilities that you uh, had on those combat Talon C-130s and without your knowledge of using it uh, in that specific terrain, uh, mm-hmm. the mission wouldn't have worked. So can, can you tell us what what exactly Combat Talon was and, and what was it that uh, about it that allowed you to complete okay. this mission? Okay. Well, at that time, the Combat Talon had uh, perhaps the best uh, navigational equipment that was uh, available because it was, uh, uh, came from several aircraft. Uh, the most unique feature of the C-130 at that time uh, was terrain-following radar. Uh, which was adopted from Air Force, which allowed us to uh, fly at low altitudes. But we could not use that in, uh, uh, at, at that slow speed uh, because uh, uh, the parameters uh, of the uh, terrain-following radar were for Air Force. And at uh, 160 knot uh, indicated airspeed, the computer went into memory. So terrain-following was out. Terrain following also was out when we started uh, going with uh, uh, training with Huey because Huey could not keep up going up and down, up and down. So uh, we tossed that out uh, immediately. So uh, the best feature of uh, uh, combat talent was useless. Now, we had excellent Doppler, uh, which uh, was a key to terrain following, so uh, that was accurate for navigation. Uh, also, our mapping radar, uh, in normal operational speeds at uh, 230 knots, would, uh, uh, where you'd have only uh, a degree and a half pitch up, uh, it, it was not ideal, but it was good. It was good enough. Uh, in uh, in a, a drafting situation, with seven and a half degree nose pitch up, uh, the radar was not effective because you could not see uh, down in front. Uh, uh, the uh, no, no nose prevented the uh, the antenna was scanning at, at an arc. It could not scan along the horizon. Uh, that was mechanical limitation, uh, which was okay uh, for. Uh, uh, high-fly performance aircraft that like F-4 uh, that uh, didn't have high pitch uh, attitude until uh, landing. So, but still, but still uh, the, the skill, the training we had, plus the uh, route selection, combat talons were it. The other feature of combat talons was Fulton recovery system. Uh, where we could pick people up from the ground. Now, that was good safety thing. We were prepared to, uh, uh, if somebody got shot down, uh, F-4 or 105 or uh, even some uh, Navy person, uh, we could come and uh, uh, try to rescue uh, dropping Fulton recovery kit to the person and then come to pick him up uh, later on. So uh, b- both of our uh, C-130 combat talents were that equipped, and uh, we had uh, uh, two 
two-man kits uh, on board of each aircraft for that purpose. So uh, that was the primary main reason uh, why they thought uh, we would be the, uh, the ideal uh, aircraft for it. Now, uh, the uh, alternate to that uh, was uh, uh, the uh, uh, tanker, C-130 tanker, which uh, uh, flew formations uh, with uh, helicopters uh, during daytime during uh, search and rescue operations. Uh, but uh, their uh, navigational equipment was not as sophisticated uh, as uh, us. Uh, plus, we had experience flying in over North Vietnam before, so uh, that was a plus for it. So that's why uh, we were we were selected uh, to do that. Uh, now, the the accuracy of navigation and so on uh, got a li little bit complicated because it was not only uh, flying, uh, <clears throat> getting to the target uh, at uh, proper time separation. We had to maintain a separation between the formations uh, going in. Now, why? If something happened to Combat Talon uh, that uh, was escorting uh, the helicopters, and if uh, they shut down one engine, they could not do drafting on three engines. We would have to switch combat talons in the air. Okay. So the second combat talon, the one that had a formation of uh, of A1Es, it flew at 145 knots indicated airspeed, 40 knots higher than the other one. So it had to do more crisscrossing because we had to stay. From the time we left Laos until the initial point, we had to maintain uh, being such a position that we could take over the helicopter uh, position uh, formation in two minutes, in two minutes' time. Wow. So uh, that, that was a challenge, uh, keeping close enough together if there was that emergency and do that. And so we exercise this, and of course, I, our combat talents and our navigational know-how did that. So uh, th this is something which has never been uh, done before. Yeah. Uh, but so it wasn't uh, just picking uh, proper checkpoints for each formation. It was also uh, stay uh, close enough so you can switch in the air. Also, what we uh, did this. If, uh, say, uh, uh, now, Combat Talon, the one flew uh, with helicopters, was called Cherry 1. Yeah. Cherry 2 was the A1E. Gotcha. Now, if, if Cherry 1, if, if the formation was broken up for some reason, say, helicopter dropped out or uh, you came in a uh, cloud cover or uh, something went wrong, uh, the helicopters would keep on flying into their last heading, and uh, the C-130 would speed up and uh, make a circle and come back 
four or six minutes later to pick up the uh, uh, under the formation and pick them up. Gotcha. Now, so that you guys, while you guys were so busy practicing that element of the raid, and and, and that's just amazing all the techniques that you developed for that. So so now Bull Simons was busy with the ground element, and we really haven't talked much about that yet. I do know that more raiders or more potential raiders came to Eglin Air Force Base than actually went on the mission. So while you guys were practicing all these air, air techniques and special formations, um, can you talk a little bit about what Bull Simons was doing with the ground element? There, there were three teams that he yes. was putting together for the ground element, and, and and I've read a lot of articles, and I know there, and, and of course your book, I, I read, and it, it seemed like there was a competition of sort going on for to compete for and get on one of those three teams that was going to be led by Bull Simons. Can, can you talk about what that competition looked like? Oh, okay, uh, yes. <clears throat> well, we had uh, three outstanding Special Forces leaders, Bull Simons being one, uh, Bud Sidnor another, and Dick Meadows, Captain Dick Meadows was another. Uh, all three of them were uh, had distinguished service in Vietnam. They never lost a man. N- neither one of them lost a man on uh, uh, many missions that they conducted. So they had great reputation, especially Dick Meadows. Uh, he everybody wanted to be on his team. So that that was like the thing. Dick Meadows uh, was the commander of the troops that would go inside the compound, that would land inside the prison. So yeah, that 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 would be a, a choice assignment. So uh, is it so, fair to say that getting an assignment on Dick Meadows' team would be highly sought after because you uh, get to go e- in? E- exactly, exactly. Okay. But uh, early in the program, that, that was more or less determined. The, uh, the team, there were three teams, okay? Dick Meadows' team, the one uh, going inside the prison, uh, was called Blue Boy. Uh, the uh, next team was called Red Wine. Uh, Red Wine, uh, no, Blue Boy had 14 members. Uh, Red Wine had 20 members, and it included the command element, uh, that had the uh, uh, Bud Sidnor. Bud Sidnor was the ground commander. It was not Bull Simons. Uh, Bull Simons uh, was second in command. Uh, so Lieutenant Colonel was the primary commander. Uh, that's a Bud Sidnor, uh, uh, Doctor Cataldo, and uh, marshalling officer, uh, and of course radio operator. So uh, four of those uh, twenty. Uh, men uh, were uh, command element, and they flew in uh, with Red Wine. Uh, Red Wine was commanded uh, by Dan Turner, Captain Dan Turner. Now, the third group was called Greenleaf, and Greenleaf uh, was commanded 
by uh, German-born Udo Walther. Uh, there were three of us that uh, were European-born, myself, Jake Yakovenko, and Udo Walther. Okay. Uh, uh, <clears throat> so uh, that team had 22 members, and on that team was uh, Bull Simons and two radio operators were, were with him. So uh, that, that, was, that was it. Now, uh, I already said that uh, Blue Boy would land inside of the prison and expected to uh, kill off all the opposition uh, 16, uh, 17, 18 seconds or as, as quickly as possible and then uh, uh, blow the hole in the wall and uh, uh, escort the prisoners out to uh, the area where Red Wine was. Red Wine's responsibility was to protect the area south of the compound and uh, in the canal bridge. Now, Greenleaf, uh, their responsibility was to take out uh, the one uh, barracks, uh, Gerd's barracks, and go uh, through the housing area uh, into to the bridge and blow out the bridge and provide protection for the force uh, from the east. Uh, now, in the west, uh, in the west, uh, we didn't need protection because there was a river, uh, uh, and uh, it was quite wide, and uh, uh, we did not expect any opposition from there. So, uh, actually, it was not just the west, but the west and north uh, uh, had a, a river. But uh, the river bridge uh, was uh, some uh, 600 yards uh, from uh, a military installation uh, that was kind of a local militia. These, these were local uh, defenders. Uh, and uh, there were uh, six to 800 of them. So uh, they would have been, the you'd say, the first responders to any attack or first opposition that we would get. That's why uh, they wanted, we needed to throw out, uh, uh, destroy the bridge. Also, uh, on the uh, west side of the bridge, uh, was uh, was a tube uh, that had uh, all all of the telephone communications wires and all of that. They went on through that. Uh, that yeah. was to be destroyed, so uh, they would have no no communication. So it, it it was it was very key. So that was the mission of the Greenleaf. Now, uh, initially, when this, I, I don't know, uh, yeah. The, the select team selections, uh, the uh, commanders uh, knew all the men. They knew their physical characteristics, and uh, a lot of was trust and their prior experience and so on. So uh, very early on, uh, they uh, uh, picked 60-plus uh, uh, individuals like, okay, these will be the ones uh, – that will be uh, going inside. Uh, out of those, of course, only fifty would be only fifty-six would be selected finally. Right. Uh, but 
th- those were trained, and some some of them trained uh, moved from one team uh, to another. Now the rest rest of the uh, 104 element that we had that that's how many people were at Duke, uh, the Army. Uh, they were uh, uh, ground support troops. Uh, there a lot of work went into preparation uh, of, of the site uh, for for every training mission. Uh, we had uh, uh, a, lot, a lot of live fire uh, training. Now, uh, in the book, you will read that there were 170 or 173 exercises that were run uh, at the ground with uh, in a compound with Barbara. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, one exercise included the whole thing. Uh, they were training in uh, individual uh, groups. That's because of live fire. Uh, okay. When Blue Boy went in and they started shooting around, uh, everybody else had to be cleared because uh, you had only clot. Uh, when uh, uh, Red Wine did their thing, uh, that was separate, and so was the green leaf, and then green leaf, and the uh, blowing up the bridge, and all of that. They used smaller charges, uh, but uh, everything was there. So, uh, in the end, uh, the the fifty six men that ended up over there, uh, they could almost count the number of steps they needed to take to go from one target area to another. Yeah, that uh, that's really it's really amazing and. Let me, let me ask you something else, and this is actually why I asked you about this competition, um, so to speak, because this is the impression I got out of it. So I, I read a story about a young special forces uh, guy by the name of Sergeant Terry Buckler, and as I understand it, he was the youngest raider that actually went on the mission. And being a sergeant at the time, he was very, very junior. In fact, the most junior person there. Being a sergeant in special forces is is the junior people or junior person there. So as I understand it, when Terry Buckler first became part of the mission, he showed up. And he was pulling guard duty, basically. He wasn't actually rehearsing for the mission. But um, as I understand it, and and I'm looking uh, to see if I have this story right, but as I understand it, he he met Colonel Bull Simons, and Colonel Simons greeted him and asked him how it's going. And and he said to Colonel Simons, he goes, well, not so good, sir. I'm standing, I'm standing guard. I didn't come to stand guard. I want to go on the mission with you. And that was about the end of the conversation for the day. But two or three weeks later, something changed and he became part of the operational mission. Can, can you tell me anything about that? Uh, yes. Well, what you just said is uh, covered in my book. Uh, Terry Buckler uh, wrote a book that is going to be published this month. And he describes uh, the same uh, situation. Obviously, Terry Terry had uh, the right stuff. He said the right thing to Bull Simons. I'll say, Bull yeah. Simons was impressed 
when he told him, say, hey, I'm just doing, and okay, and what were the circumstances? What, 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 hap- what happened there? Uh, it, it was an, in, not incident, but uh, it was an occasion uh, where uh, he came uh, with uh, uh, General Blackburn and uh, some other general. And uh, uh, they were going into, uh, into the uh, planning room, into the facility which he was guarding. And uh, uh, he challenged them as he should have uh, credentials because it was a top secret facility. So they had to prove to him. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, that was part, part of the training too. We were so security conscious anyway. Right. So uh, after, after that, I, I guess uh, uh, the uh, uh, Simons noticed the diligence with, the, with which he performed his guard duties. <laughs> and then he complains about these guard duties and <laughs> You know, it, it impressed Bull Simon, so Bull Simon's got him a got him spot. Uh, and guess guess what? Uh, the uh, Dan Turner was uh, interested in him. He he liked him. Uh, there was a young man. He had never been to Vietnam before. Had no combat experience, but he was a good radio operator. So uh, Dan Turner, uh, the commander of uh, Red Wine, picked him to be his radio operator. So uh, he had to be within three steps of, of him wherever okay. uh, wherever he went. So, so when when you all are there, you're just tirelessly you're you're doing your your piece with the air units practicing your formations. The ground units are practicing. How long before you all deployed to Southeast Asia did? all of the teams get announced and including the ground elements and say, okay, uh, uh, these are going to be the 56 people to go. Uh, how okay. long before deployment did that happen? Uh, that happened. I, as I said, there were about, uh, 60 individuals, 60 plus that were trained and, uh, it, uh, became obvious to some, that they were not making it, they would not not be one of the 56. But the uh, final 56 was determined on the day of the mission. Oh, actually, the day of the mission, that's, when you were over in, in, yes, in theater. Okay. In, in, in theater, that, that's when it was. And, of course, uh, uh, Bull Simons made an offer to everybody if any anybody has drudgers about going over there, and uh, he repeated, uh, uh, his estimate was 50-50 chance of uh, uh, making it. Uh, nobody stepped away. So we had a bunch of alternates who were very disappointed that they did not uh, get to step uh, and take somebody else's place. Right. But and, it it was it was that uh, oh boy! It, it, once they found out, see th- this this was af- after they f- uh, no, j- they just before the mission was announced, they knew uh, who the fifty six were, and but then they were given the option to yeah. uh, get out. So and, when, uh, when when I was reading your book, um, I I. I 
I just kind of, it was just surprise after surprise. There, there were things going on, you know, you mentioned before when we talked, uh, on, on the, the first episode of the podcast, you were telling me, you know, Vietnam at that point in time was really a day war because of the lack of capability of night vision goggles, but, and, and, and all kinds of navigation equipment, but your mission was purely a night a night mission mission and you had to do it at night so everything you did in training was at night and night vision goggles today are commonplace and very readily available but back in those days it I got the impression that you guys were like you were going out on the open market and 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 trying to find things to buy um that were previously civilians or uh, previously untested. You were buying special shotguns and modifying them. Uh, you were uh, getting bolt cutters so you could cut the chains off of POWs, specially modifying those, modifying machetes. So it just seemed like the tools that the government had and supplied you all with in special forces were not adequate for the mission that you were undertaking. So you had to basically supply yourselves to do that. Can, yes. can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, well, I wasn't directly involved in the army portion, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, what you mentioned was, uh, was correct. Uh, in addition to all of, all of the things you mentioned, there was a acetylene torch, uh, one tiny, tiny young uh, Sergeant Young uh, carried acetylene torch, so uh, he he could go through the hole into the uh, prison and uh, uh, cut out if uh, bolts uh, bolt cutters didn't work. Uh, he, he would uh, free uh, people from chains uh, with uh, acetylene torch. Uh, Doctor Cataldo uh, carried an axe. Uh, because uh, uh, we didn't know whether the telephone pole uh, in the Red Wine area uh, was wood or whether it was cement. <laughs> okay. The first photograph did not reveal it. So his job was that he would chop that tele- uh, that pole down. <laughs> so uh, that was another one. Now, uh, a lot of things were improvised. We need, needed the bigger magazines for uh, car 15s. Uh, and slings were improvised because each, each man uh, on the ground had, uh, uh, well, we had few uh, left-hand shooters, but we had uh, mostly right-handed. So they, and, and that this had to be, uh, individually structured, uh, fit to the size. So uh, the uh, uh, car 15 that was slung o- over the man's shoulder, uh, all he'd have to do is uh, lower, lower his head and uh, his eyeball would be, or his eyes would be level with the, uh, uh, with the target. Now, we modified uh, car 15s with... Uh, uh, special night vision, n- not night vision, but night sights. I mean, uh, 
those sites uh, uh, improved the accuracy of the shooters about 25%. And Dick Meadows uh, read something in a magazine about such a thing, and he managed to locate it uh, in California. It was not yet widely available for, for sale, but uh, he, he did procure those. And this site is so special that uh, uh, people, uh, soldiers shooting it, would not have to close their uh, left eye or right eye. You would shoot with both eyes open. Wow. That, that's, so that's that, amazing. That was the, that, that was the first. Okay. And uh, shooting with both eyes open imp- improved the accuracy 25%. Wow. So uh, that, that, that was a very pleasant surprise. Now, the, of course, bigger magazines from 16 to, I, I forget what it was, 30. Uh, now, uh, then pouches, that, the vest that they wore, uh, uh, they had pockets for uh, 16 uh, uh, for, for a cartridge container. Uh, yeah, magazine. 16 rounds, 16, 16, round, yes, 16 uh, magazines. Round. Well, but uh, so uh, tailoring shop got involved. They had to be, <laughs> pockets had to be uh, enlarged. Uh, some uh, improvisation was made for uh, concussion grenades for pockets. So uh, they would be more secure uh, than in uh, normal combat. Amazing, and and of course you already mentioned machetes. Machetes, uh, uh, they uh, cut out cut out a hole or hook at the tip of the machete. So if a, a machete was sharp enough, it would cut through concertina wire, and you, you could uh, flip it over, and you had the hook, you pull concertina uh, wire uh, aside, so you could go through. Uh, so uh, uh, goggles, night vision goggles, uh, they found those uncomfortable initially. Uh, well, <laughs> they said, like, why, why, do we, why do we need them? Uh, well, when they were landing inside of the uh, compound at uh, uh, Duke, uh, uh, at the range, uh, after so many landings, there was no dust, no leaves. It was, uh, the surface was uh, uh, almost as hard as a parking lot. So <laughs> there was no debris flowing uh, uh, yeah. around. And, uh, uh, well, they were told once you get in a rice paddy or and so on, uh, who knows what kind of stuff will be f- floating over there. Uh, so, uh and guess what? Uh, that was very uh, uh, well thought out uh, because those people uh, that uh, ended up inside with the compound, uh, when they came out, uh, it was just a, in a, they were in a cloud of dust. Right. The leaves were falling and uh, tree limbs and so on. So they would have been blinded and uh, goggles uh, helped them. So, uh, you know, gosh, uh, those guys thought of everything, and they were uh, very well 
well prepared. Yeah, it's amazing now, the we, detail that, that you all got into and the things that you had to think of to, to make yes. the raid work. Now, so before you... Goggles. Well, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Night, night vision goggles. Uh, let me finish that. Yeah. Okay. Those were not yet in existence. There were only six night vision goggles available at Fort Belvoir where they were being uh, uh, studied as prototypes. Larry Ropka secured those six prototypes for us. And those were used on a raid for the first time, night vision goggles. They did not work very well. Why? Because of smearing. If you, you, they look pretty much like the goggles today. Uh, maybe today's goggles are a little bit smaller, <laughs> uh, more comfortable. Uh, but if you moved your head, uh, there was so, so much smearing over there that uh, uh, they were useless. They were useless in a cockpit. The helicopter pilots tried them. Uh, there was too much glare uh, from the instrument panel, the amber lights uh, at night. No, every time the head was moved, it, it, it was just too confusing. Uh, so who ended up using uh, the goggles? Uh, well, uh, the helicopter uh, pilots who settled down outside of the uh, prison in the, in the in the lake, in the island on the lake, gunners, uh, uh, not every gunner, but uh, some gunners uh, would use them and they would, if you, they moved uh, head, their head very slowly, left or right, they would be able to see uh, things without smearing. Okay. Uh, uh, goggles were also used by uh, uh Jim McClam, uh, Captain Jim McClam, who was the marshalling officer, uh, he was the one who used them uh, to uh, recognize, to uh, uh, watch for the teams as they were coming into the helicopter. The last team uh, that came on board uh, was uh, uh, came from the uh, danger area. Uh, from the bridge by the canal. There were three men. Uh, so uh, he was able to tell, hey, they're our own. They're, they're not, not the enemy. Okay. Uh, so definition uh, was not, not that clear. or It's a lot clearer, clearer today. Uh, it, uh, but as fuzzy as it was, uh, they served a purpose. Now, uh, night vision goggles, uh, night vision, uh, I didn't get to it uh, when I was talking about combat talons. Uh, combat talons uh, got night vision device, uh, forward-looking infrared. At that time, there were only two of those in existence. Two of those were used by operational uh, testing and evaluation squadron out of Norton that flew highly classified missions. Uh, Larry Ropka <laughs> was the project officer for that uh, unit. So he knew about it, and he uh, engineered having them installed in our airplane. So here we had 
uh, we had a, a TV-like screen. It, it was uh, about the size of a, of a normal laptop computer. But that turned, that was excellent. It, 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 uh, quality was very good. It turned nine into day. What it helped us uh, on a, as we were going in through, from Laos into North Vietnam, uh, we were down in the, in the valleys, in the jungle, and uh, uh, even in the daytime, you could not tell where was the river uh, unless uh, there was a curve and there was a sandbar that you could identify. There's a river because jungle canopy would cover that up. Guess what? At night, rivers showed up just like that. Because the temperature variation. Right. Well, that's so, fantastic. So uh, we had, uh, now I was a radar navigator. I was uh, uh, facing uh, to the right of the aircraft. And on my uh, right shoulder, uh, that's where the uh, instrument was installed in the screen. So for that, we needed an, an additional navigator. Uh, it, it was a it, it was a primitive instrument. It needed a lot of manipulation, a lot of tweaking and all of that. But once you got that tweak, oh, you got the picture. Right. And, and, and you could, we had a, a turret, so you, you, you could uh, turn it left and right. So did you have so, somebody uh, on the mission then? Did you have somebody on the mission sitting there right next to oh, you oh, yes. operating that? That's right. It was Bill Stripling, my uh, fellow navigator. So we had three navigators. One navigator was a map reader. Uh, I was the radar navigator in my ship. And Stripling was the, uh, he was uh, the forward-looking infrared guy. Okay. And he would, every now and then, he would tap me on the shoulder. You know, I was busy and I would look over there and he'd point, river. And, wow, you know, I was amazed. Yeah. So I knew I was, I, I could not get the river uh, on the on my radar, but uh, right. by positioning the ridge lines in the distances to the ridge line, uh, I knew we were coming to to the river. And here, Bill was able to tell me exactly when we were crossing that river. So again, uh, good good for timing. Yeah, that, so that's incredible. Those, that was the first time forward-looking infrared was used uh, on an operational uh, mission. Let, so, let me let me ask you something about uh, before your deployment. So, Admiral McCain was the commander of the Pacific Fleet at that time. So, wh when you deploy this team, uh, the Sante Raiders, over to Southeast Asia, you're you're going into his command area. Obviously, how long before you all deployed to Southeast Asia? Did did you all bring Admiral McCain into the know and notify him of the mission that you are going into okay. theater to complete? Okay. Well, now, he was not just the commander of the fleet. He was commander of the Pacific Theater. Okay. And uh, Vietnam was, was under him. It just so happens it wasn't planned, but he was in Washington after the Joint Chiefs of Staff approved uh, the initial uh, plan, uh, the uh, training plan. Uh, 
So they briefed him. They briefed him. And uh, he asked a question. He says, is Johnny there? And uh, it was Leir Ropka that told him no. And at that time, I didn't know that Leir Ropka knew uh, uh, the people who were expected to be at Sante. I don't know how we found that out. But uh, but they knew the, his in, son, in, John intel, McCain, intelligence was not expected it. to be there. That's right. So the, the people, people in Washington knew the names. Now, okay. I was surprised to find out uh, after the fact, uh, after the mission, no, when we were in, in Takli, uh, that's when I found out that some of the uh, planners that were working with me every night uh, saw the list. It was right there in, in our conference room where we were doing our nighttime planning because everything we did was at night. Uh, during the day, we were, in, we were always in civilian clothes uh, during right. the day and even at night in the General Manners conference room. But Dr. Cataldo had the list because he, knew, he had the medical histories uh, of our, all the people. Wow. Okay. And I, I was surprised. Now, how, how come, you know, I'm, I'm sure they were talking about it. I must have been busy doing something else. So uh looks like I was the only one <laughs> in the air operations mission, uh, uh, mission planners uh, that did not know that there was a list because certainly I, I, would, I would have been <laughs> curious yeah, enough to see I'd it. Yeah, I'd be very but interested any, but to anyway, going to be on see, that list. We, we minded our own business. Yeah, uh, we asked only the questions that needed to be asked, yeah. and uh, it was it important for me to know who was over there. No, no. Yeah, I, uh, I got that, it. Well, that, so here's the next thing I've got to ask you about because this is just, and I've really never heard anybody talk too much about this. I want to understand it. This was such a secret mission. You you had to practice and train for it in the United States. You couldn't do it in Southeast Asia. Uh, in theater. So I want to understand how can you deploy um, an entire unit like this, special forces unit? How do you get them into Southeast Asia undetected? How do you get every? That's just amazing to me. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you did that? Okay. Uh, well, <clears throat> it, yes, it took a lot of planning, uh, careful planning, uh, Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. In the next episode with Colonel Gargas, we'll discuss the deployment to Southeast Asia, the Sante raid execution in the early morning of November 21st, 1970, and the feelings they had immediately following the mission. Be sure to check out the details section of this podcast episode where you can find the Amazon link to the Sante Raid book written by Colonel Gargas. You can also find his website there, which includes articles, pictures, and video, which will give you a better understanding for the full scope of this mission. If you enjoy the Yankee Air Pirate podcast series, please recommend it to a friend and share the link to the podcast on your social media pages. It's an easy and a free way to help us spread these historic stories. You can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeeairpirate 
at gmail.com. That's the Yankee Air Pirate, all one word, at gmail.com. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi.